The joy that fills our hearts this morning to be able to gather and to assemble in the way that we have is truly a magnificent thing. Many who continue to, to be under the weather and not able to be with us perhaps challenges us to appreciate yet again the blessing that's come our way. That on this third Sunday in November, the year 2013, you and I have been blessed to assemble. And for one of the 52 times on the Lord's Day during this year, we can come together and offer worship unto God. We continue today a series of lessons that we began some a few weeks ago concerning the words spoken by our Master while He was on the cross. And to this point, as we have looked rather intently at those particular words, we have found that they have touched us in so many rather profound and deep ways. You'll notice, in fact, on this introductory slide to my left, that we have already learned that as Jesus hanged on that cross... The first word of which the Scriptures make record that He spoke was a powerful word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23 verse 34. And yet we notice the second word the sacred Scriptures have recorded for us, the one we studied some two weeks ago today, was that word that touched us by appreciating that on that occasion the Lord rather amazingly to that thief said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Last Sunday morning we turned our attention to John 19, verses 26 and 27, and saw on that occasion that this third word spoken by our Master very tenderly expressed to His mother, Woman, behold thy son. And of course also to John, behold thy mother. And from that point forward, we noticed that John again took care of the very mother of Jesus. Today we come to the fourth installment in this series of lessons and give our consideration to those words that Brother Cale read for us earlier from the 27th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'd invite you, if you still don't have your Bible there, to turn back to that location. Matthew 27, verse number 46. As we give our attention today to that particular lesson, that particular verse, the key word will be forsaken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'd invite you to look with me again as we have done in the past to remind ourselves about the setting, the scene, the stage, if you will, and look yet again at the circumstances in which our Savior uttered these words. They were not uttered in a pleasant, favorable, quiet vestibule of preaching. They weren't uttered in a very nice pulpit circumstance. They were uttered under the most agonizing, the most torturous, the most difficult of circumstances. Our Savior had undergone a night that had involved a beating, a scourging, if you please, John 19, verse 1. He had undergone hours before a difficult circumstances beyond that scourging in which He, of course, had to bear His own cross to the place where He would be nailed to it. Beyond that, we remember that once He arrived at this place of the skull, Golgotha, his hands were stretched out and nails were driven into them, affixing Him to that cross. And finally, on the cross itself, it was at a condition perhaps somewhat like this, that He uttered these words that you and I have studied now for three weeks prior to this one. These words have been so challenging, so amazing, so remarkable, so profound, and yet they have set before us the grandeur of the moment, the victory to be seen in it. And some of the last lessons of the series will highlight that victory in ways unlike any other. Today, as we come to the setting before us, Jesus in a condition like that, let's highlight yet again the circumstances that led to these words that Jesus expressed in verse 46 of this chapter. This perfect Son of God, 
who had himself engaged in no violence, no transgression, no particular matter at all of sinful character. And yet he found himself by wicked and cruel hands being nailed to this cross. Hands, of course, not his own, but those Romans, those Jews who by wickedness and cruelty nailed him there. Those are the very words Peter used, weren't they? In Acts chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. As you'll notice, our Savior in that condition. Now we come to recognize this. The inspired writers inform us it was the nine o'clock hour when our Savior was nailed to that cross. For three long hours, writhing in anguish and excruciating agony on the cross, our Savior had proceeded through those hours with difficulty, with great greatness of strength to be seen in His character. You notice that brings us to the noon hour. After all the evil and all the badness that we've seen from the human family, a darkness falls over the land, over the earth, as the King James writers put it. At the noon hour, that darkness falls. Interesting, and at the middle of the daytime, when you might have thought that it would be sunshiny and bright, you would have thought at least, even if cloudy, still there would be a great appearance of light. And yet, at the noon hour, darkness fell over the area. As that darkness fell over, perhaps I would invite you to think with me about the fact that darkness didn't just last for a moment, not just for five minutes, not even for just an hour. The Scriptures inform us for three hours that darkness lasted over the land. Isn't it a bit intriguing that the celestial bodies, if you please, were joining in harmony with the refrain and evil and injustice of the hour? Isn't it significant that at the time of our Savior's birth, the wise men were permitted to follow a star that led them to where He was? And yet one more time, the heavens join in the chorus of this moment when darkness falls over the land. As darkness fell over the land, isn't it somewhat a reminder of the evil, the injustice, the incredible scene of atrocious behavior that was taking place? We read in 1 John 1 verses 5 and 6 that in God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And yet darkness was covering the land covering what was taking place on this incredible event. It need to be interesting as you think about the hours then. Nailed to the cross at 9 a.m., made it for three hours and all the terrific agony that it must have been. Darkness falls over the land at noon, continuing till 3 p.m. That brings us to the scene you'll notice near the bottom of that slide. We've now arrived at the 3 p.m. afternoon hour. We've now arrived at the time when for three hours darkness has been a veil over these atrocious events of the human family. Our Savior, they're hanging on the cross in darkness. The people standing around the cross again in darkness. We now come to this scene that was read for us earlier. In the midst of this, the text again reads, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those words also recorded for us in Mark's account in Mark 15, 34. You'll notice as we give thought to that passage, it says that the Lord cried. It's not as if His words were extraordinarily faint and barely audible. Our Lord had enough vigor and enough intensity within Him 
enough fervent and ardent character to cry out these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. As our Savior then uttered those words, they will be the subject of our consideration for the remainder of the lesson this morning. The meaning, the significance, the character attached with them and to them. You'll notice we might well begin by observing that our Savior quoted Scripture on this occasion. Isn't that amazing? To be in that kind of agony and in that kind of condition and yet with a purpose and direction of mind to quote from the sacred text of the Bible. I would hope all of us in the dire conditions of life might always have a passage of Scripture on our thoughts and mind that we too could use it for solace, for comfort, for encouragement. Do you and I then quote passages of the Bible when we face dire circumstances in life or are we too quick to turn our attention to human solutions? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those words are found in Psalm 22 verse 1. Jesus, the Son of God, quoted from the passage of the Old Testament. Maybe among passages, that one ranks right up there with the highest in terms of its foreshadowing the marvelous magnitude of His crucifixion. Not once, not twice, but apparently three critical times in that psalm, David foretold, prophesied about the very crucifixion of Jesus, the scenes that would surround it, the events that would be, in, that would be involved in it. Jesus quoted the opening passage, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those words originally in Hebrew in that passage, and you'll notice they have a strong Aramaic content as well. Isn't it intriguing that as David first uttered them in Psalm 22, he uttered them in circumstances that were not nearly as difficult as the ones in which Jesus found himself. David, you might recall on that occasion, was being greatly bothered by others that were surrounding him, others that were interested in evil matters, those that were the very servants of the devil. And yet David, in his desire to be upright and righteous, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David apparently used it in reference to the fact that David didn't find the number of friends that he thought he should. Those that would encourage him and edifying and lift him up, he felt alone and forsaken. But think about where Jesus uttered them. Here he was in the midst of being crucified. Not only forsaken by a large number, of course, of the religious leaders, he did have some friends and family there standing apparently at the foot of the cross. But Jesus was being forsaken by one far more significant than that. As we turn to this next slide, isn't it significant that in the hours of darkness we have no reference that the Lord said anything until He made this statement, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What's the meaning of those phrases, those terms that were so carefully utilized by Jesus? Eli, Eli. That word to you and me looks like Eli. And in fact, you and I read so often about individuals in the Word of God whose name have at least those three letters in that order in it. Names like Elijah, names like Elisha, names like Eliphaz. All of them begin with the letters E-L-I in that order. The reason is very significant, isn't it? That phrase, Eli, that word E-L-I, as you and I would see it, it literally means, my God, my God. And therefore, all of those names have a direct reference to the point that 
their parents named them in a way that gave glory and honor to God. Elisha, God is salvation. The word Elijah, again, has reference to the fact that Jehovah is my God. Wouldn't it be interesting to name your son in such a way that his name made a direct and overt reference to the God that you honor and serve? Jesus thus made reference to his own father, my God, my God. The next word, as you can see, is this word lama, which in that language is an interrogative word. It means why. My God, my God, why? And then finally, we come to a bit lengthier word, sabachthani, which literally means to abandon or to forsake. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The thrust and the importance attached to it is very profound, isn't it? You and I can notice then that Jesus, on this occasion, as there were some who listened and who heard what He said, they thought that He was pleading and in fact making request for Elijah to come. You'll notice the Lord was making no such refrain, no such request. But rather, He Himself was that Elijah which was for to come, as we read in Matthew 11, verse 11. But you and I can notice in it all that our Lord uttered a word of abandonment. He, ordered, he uttered a statement of loneliness. But not loneliness as if He was estranged from His family. They were there. His mother was, at least, at the foot of the cross. But He was far more interested in observing. He felt abandoned from His Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a strong statement then of desertion by God. The Lord said so. I wonder what that suggests. What does that mean and what might that overwhelmingly imply for you and for me today? I would ask that you would develop some of those thoughts with me as we proceed to look at some of these next ideas. Rather pointedly, it might be stated to all be built around this. In what sense and in what way did the Father forsake the Son on this occasion? In what way and with what thrust and indication was that abandonment set before us? It is a very interesting thing to consider, isn't it? I would submit to you that some of these thoughts, it seems directly, ought to come to you and me. If this abandonment, if this forsaking by God happened to the Master, could it happen to you and me? Could it be that you and I would find ourselves, though our intent in righteousness would easily be appreciated that God might abandon us? After all, could it not be said that our Lord was perfect in every way, had, having had committed no sin? In Hebrews 4.15 we read so abundantly, for we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And that verse is just one of a host that sets before us the promise of God toward this end. You remember many of them well. Psalm 56 verse 11, In God have I put my trust, I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. That passage only leads us to echo these promises and these sentiments. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, Was it not there stated, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? And yet here, the blessed Father abandoned, forsook the Son. 
Isn't it interesting that our Savior uttered a word of promise much like that to His own apostles as He sent them forth to a world to preach and to make converts to His cause? Did He not say in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world." Would it not be delightful to make the absolute rest and trust in the presence of God with us? In what sense then did the Master feel the abandonment of His Father? I'd invite you to notice that second set of verses that perhaps even amplify in our thinking the questions surrounding this time. In Matthew 3 verse 17, Did not the Father there with respect to the Son say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was the occasion when our Savior was baptized by John the Baptist. That was the occasion when that powerful voice from heaven affirmed God's pleasantness and His favor toward Jesus. What about that scene on the Mount of Transfiguration when one more time the Lord glistening before Him was transfigured and there one more time the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. God's pleasantness, His acceptance of the Lord is so easily seen in verses like John 7 verse 17 when the Lord Himself admitted, I always do those things that please the Father. May I suggest to you then in light of all these things, maybe these are the reasons, maybe these are considerations that help us appreciate the forsaking and the abandonment. What is it that was occurring at that moment? 4,000 years roughly, the earth had been in existence prior to that time. 4,000 years God had orchestrated the affairs of history throughout a people that He had called the Israelites, ultimately recognized as the Jews, and brought into the world a special individual. This one that was God in the flesh, Matthew 1.23. This one that would not only be God in the flesh, but would be described in ways that you and I are about to see. Please look at some of these verses with me. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That statement, though made by John the Baptist, was made with respect to, in John 1.29, the very Son of God, the one who now was hanging on a cross, the Lamb of God, bringing immediately to the mind of all those Jews and perhaps many others alike, the fact that throughout the centuries, untold number of lambs had been offered. Untold number of lambs had been presented as sacrifices to the God of heaven, there was the Lamb of God, though. This Lamb was now being crucified. Beyond that, we appreciate well in 1 John 2, 2, this amazing statement, that not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. I'd invite you then to think for just a moment with me about every sin that has ever been committed by any human being living in any country in any age. Doesn't it nearly bring a tear to your eye to consider the mass of sins that would be? Every lie that has ever been told, every sexual sin ever committed, every act of violence unopposed by the nature of the Word of God, 
every characteristic of human flesh, be it envy, jealousy, strife, variance, hatred, every element of ugliness as foreseen by the God of heaven, every one of it converged like a gigantic lens to 3 p.m. on the afternoon that you and I are studying in Matthew 27. Every one of them. No wonder the earth had been clouded in darkness. No wonder the scene was such a scene of morass, if you please. You notice that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the lens and the focal point of it is highlighted in a word like this one. For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Note with me again the first part of that verse. He, that's God, the Father, made Him, namely Christ, to be sin for us, though He knew no sin. Jesus had never known what it was like to be a sinner. He'd never been one. And yet here the very God Himself, the second member of the Godhead, took upon Him the reality of every sin that was ever committed. He bore them, carried them, if you please, on His shoulder. And as He did so, they, of course, were nailed to the cross with Him. Can you imagine the greatness of that moment? You'll notice in Romans 3, verses 23 to 25, we see Paul's reference to a thought like this one in these words. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. We have redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amazing, isn't it? To see the convergence of all of space and time to the events at 3 o'clock that afternoon. It was a significant time. Perhaps words fail to describe its significance. It might be that as we move forward in that lesson, you'll notice at the bottom, this scene presents to us then simultaneously the greatness of hatred on the one hand and love on the other. On the one hand, isn't it true that in that moment we see the great love of God for every member of the human family? For He was willing to allow Himself to endure that for us, to pay the price for our sins. But at the same time, isn't it true that not only do we see that great love, we see His tremendous hatred for sin in any form. Sin in any form. That hatred perhaps highlighted as we even move forward and look at it this way. Significant isn't it that later the Hebrew writer would put it in language like this. In a passage that follows right after a statement like this one. In Hebrews 5 verses 7, 8, and 9. The inspired writer on that occasion calls in our mind to return to the scene of the cross, to the scene surrounding the cross. And it was, he made note of these episodes. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. It began, though he were a son. A son indeed, the son of God to be sure. But he says he learned obedience. He succumbed himself to all the rigors and all the anguishes attached to the cross. He learned all the fullness that came along with obedience toward that plan that God had put in place. He learned obedience. And the text then proceeds to say, He became the author of eternal salvation. He became the originator of it, the one who can make it possible, the one who through whom it is to be found, if it's found at all. You'll notice that it is in Christ we find those great and powerful words. 
Isn't it interesting that those words are amplified when we notice it was through the eternal spirit he offered himself without spot to God, Hebrews 9, 14. May I say then, as we think about the way in which this abandonment took place, it seems as if we can reach this kind of conclusion, a conclusion that highlights this. We find in the Scriptures that there were other individuals that God had abandoned. There were other individuals whom God had forsaken. Perhaps to mind ought to come individuals like Saul. You may recall in 1 Samuel we read a rather noteworthy episode about a gentleman who had started with such productivity and promise. And yet, by the time we reach the 13th chapter, we find that God had turned from him. God had forsaken Saul because of Saul's disobedience. And you'll notice his forsaking of Saul was in many ways something that could not be undone. Isn't it true that God said, I'll take the kingdom from you and give it to your neighbor, one who's better than you. And from that moment forward, the kingdom had been taken from Saul and there would be no dynasty in his family. But you notice it was not anything like that here. This apparently was an exceedingly brief, an exceedingly temporary abandonment due to the sin that was now in presence, the sin being carried by the Son of God Himself. You and I ought to reflect, it seems to me, on that as much as anything. It is one thing to say that He paid the price for my sins and yours. It's entirely another to say that He paid that price knowing that for a moment He would be severed, forsaken, and abandoned by the one whom He loved more than anyone else. To think that He was willing to undergo that for me and for you, doesn't that highlight how much He wants you and me in heaven? How much He wants us to be saved and how much He wants us to appreciate the body, the church for which He died? I'd submit that some of these thoughts then directly follow. In passages like Habakkuk 1.13 and Psalm 5 verse 4, we learn there that God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. Interesting, isn't it? He is so holy, so perfect, that He is not in any way going to associate Himself with that which is ungodly and that which is sinful. And yet here was Christ carrying my sins in all the woe of that moment and yours as well. Maybe it's no wonder that God had to look away for a moment because He saw my sins and He saw yours. And as we mentioned earlier, every sin that's ever been committed by anyone of any age and country, as that temporary forsaking took place, no wonder our Savior said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? May I ask you to know that in this statement, isn't it significant? Jesus didn't plead for relief from the pain of the crucifixion. He didn't plead for any release in any way. He had even refused the soothing liquids that they were willing to give Him. He felt the pain in every element of its greatness. But the thing of which He spoke was He was severed from His Father for a moment. Doesn't that highlight how important it is to have a relationship with God? To understand day by day and moment by moment the significance and how tragic it is for that not to be in place? Here was our Savior, even for a moment, and yet that moment was enough to prompt the whole subject of this lesson, the whole statement that He made, only one of seven on the cross. As you'll notice in that, let's close the lesson in the final 
moments of it than by asking the application to you and me. If this, the Son of God, found Himself so moved, so compelled, and so profoundly altered in this moment that He made this statement on the cross about being forsaken, may we tragically then make statements that aren't there so many in our world who live apart from the blessing of God. Maybe there are those who once knew a relationship with Him. They'd been baptized into Christ. They walked faithfully, but then the time came that they became unfaithful. They became sorely moved from God. They were forsaken by Him. Ought not they be agitated in mind? Ought not, they, ought not they to not be able to sleep at night? To think about meandering through this life and sojourning, not having relationship with God, and yet untold individuals live that very way. How they do it, I do not know. To pillow their head at night, knowing if they die, they're going to hell. Knowing that things are not well with their soul. And the Son of God died on the cross. And He was willing to endure momentary abandonment. And yet they live, these individuals of whom we speak, they live forsaken by God because they won't obey Him. Doesn't it remind us about Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10? We could just hear Paul as he so often closed his books with words of greeting and salutation to special individuals of whom he had in mind. And yet of Demas he said, He loved this present world. He's forsaken me. Here was Demas who at one time was a faithful member of the church apparently. Here was a man who had been Paul's associate, his comrade, if you please, and now he loved this present world more than he loved God. And as such, he's now been forsaken by God. Can you imagine? And yet today, you and I know individuals who have made those sad decisions. We know individuals, perhaps on the other side of that coin, who've never yet entered a relationship with the Master. They know that Jesus died on the cross. They know the church that He established. They know of it at least. But they've never made that decision to become a part of it. They've never availed themselves of all the blessings that took place at 3 o'clock that afternoon, 1,983 years ago. Why do you delay today? If you, my friend, are not in relationship with God, it isn't God's fault. May I be very frank with you, it's your fault. God has done everything heavenly possible for a relationship with you to exist. He gave His Son to die, carrying your sins. He didn't make you pay the price for Him yourself, for you nor I could not, could not have done it. He paid the price for us. The decision is left to me and to you. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If at this point in life you know that you've been forsaken by God, not because He wants to forsake you, but because you haven't given Him a chance to put upon you the cloak of righteousness spoken of in the New Testament, the very blood that Jesus shed, God promises will cover you if you will just submit to the plan of salvation. You must hear the blessed news of the gospel. Believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Come before and make a statement of confession of what the belief in your heart is, that He is the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38.
if it is the case that you again have known the blessing that attached to being a member of that blood-bought body of Christ, but over the course of days and months and perhaps even years, you've become unfaithful. Religion for you has just become a, a ritual. It seems to lack meaning. It seems to lack the degree to which that scene has described it. Why not come back to your first love? If you have lived in a way that's brought reproach upon Jesus, I hope that you, in a renewed sense, will be bothered by what we've studied today. If He was willing to do that, surely we ought to desire to live holily, justly, righteously, and soberly. Those very words are found in Titus 2 verse 12. Today, as you and I analyze our life, and if we find that it seems as if Jesus being forsaken by God has little meaning in our life, maybe we've got some serious heart problems. Heart problems in such a way that we don't care enough about that. We don't care enough about the church. We don't care enough about the Word of God. All of that seems to us to have just been an event not much more special than any other event in history. When that event has impacted all of eternity, and so it shall for every person before whom I stand today. If this very day you've been prompted then in the characteristic of your life to respond, Brother Glenn has chosen this hymn of encouragement, and we're going to stand and sing that, and it is an opportune time, a convenient time. I trust that you'll not let this convenient season pass. If again you've been prompted to come forward today, don't delay. Why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?